So we're thinking in these weeks about uh, rest, uh, how we find our rest in Christ, uh, and then being still in a busy world. And uh, We're also highlighting uh, our different high schools and some of the students from our uh, youth ministry that are engaged in different schools in the area. Uh, we're going to spend probably most of the fall, at least in the, uh, the end of October, I know, and then potentially into early November, highlighting uh, different schools. Uh, last week, I talked about students and what God is doing through them at Grapevine High School. Uh, this week, I want to talk about Colleyville Heritage, and I quickly had Heritage people coming after me last week because I did Grapevine, so we're going to even this thing out uh, in what God's doing. And uh, if you don't hear your school or you're wondering if you're high school and you have students that are there in our student ministry, uh, I, I feel pretty good that we're going to engage that in the coming weeks, but if you're uh, concerned, you can check with me. And the beauty of this is I'm leaning on Jermaine Arful and Courtney Chandler. They're our student ministers, and if I don't get anything right, it's because they fed me the information. You can go to them uh, with anything that might be a concern, but uh, they're doing a fantastic job leading our students, and one of our, our hopes is to establish worship not just in every neighborhood, and uh, and we're excited about the way God keeps unfolding that vision, uh, but also how we can be a part uh, of establishing worship of Jesus uh, on every high school campus uh, in our area, uh, middle school campuses and elementary ones as well. And, and I just wanted to give you a picture of what God is doing uh, through our students at some of these campuses. The scripture says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. This is not students that are wanting us to get their names out there. This is us asking, what is God doing through different students uh, and us building them up uh, and what God is doing through them? Uh, and at Colleyville Heritage right now, Caden West is one of those students, uh, and uh, he is constantly in conversation uh, with other students about his faith. He's bold in his faith. He's uh, excited about who Jesus is. He loves to talk with atheists, with people uh, or students that have different religious backgrounds, and just to explain to them uh, what, uh, who Jesus is and what it would mean to be a follower uh, of Jesus. It's always inviting people to church. We also encourage our students uh, to start leading uh, before they ever graduate from high school. Caden is a co-leader of one of our middle school life groups. He's also taught multiple times to our middle and high schoolers as a whole. Uh, so we love what God is doing through him uh, on the campus at Colleyville Heritage. And then Kevon Connor uh, is another young man that is leading uh, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, uh, primarily for the football team uh, at Heritage. Uh, depending on what your sports background is, you know that to stand for Christ in the midst of a, a locker room, depending on the locker room, could be uh, a challenge. Uh, and yet he's a natural leader, not afraid to share his faith, comes from a tough background, and uh, God is just doing a really cool work uh, through Kivon. Uh, and then Ali Sparks is the third one that I would say uh, that we see God working in at Heritage. Uh, and I mentioned last week some of the students that they're posting routinely on social media, using that as a way to, to talk about their faith, who Christ is. Uh, and again, uh, in this cultural moment, uh, I'm so proud of our students when they're standing for Christ uh, out there in the social media realm. Uh, Allie is doing that constantly. Uh, she also is uh, a worship leader. She leads our students uh, in worship. She's led with our students here before. Uh, and then she also is a leader of Students Standing Strong uh, on the campus. And so that's just some highlights of a few. There's certainly more that God is working through, but we just wanted to give a picture of the way that God is working uh, through our students. Now, I believe that they can actively lead worship, post on social media, boldly share their faith, lead organizations on their campus because of the very thing that we're talking about. They have, whether they would frame it this way or not, but somewhere along the way, they have found their rest in Christ. They have found Jesus to be their center. And it's out of that rest and out of that center that they, in turn, are leading and living the way that they're living. And I would just say this anecdotally, uh, I kind of roll this way. I figure things out after I've talked to people for a while and I start thinking, oh, that's what our culture is doing right now. Or, 
I'm counseling people and I start hearing something. For example, narcissism was never a deal uh, until, I don't know, three or four years ago. Then all of a sudden I hear everybody's a narcissist. And I'm thinking, where did this come from? So that's kind of how I roll. I'm a little slow. Uh, I have to go anecdotally what I hear. And then I start to figure out what's going on. But what I would say my observation is over these years uh, is that children of families that are following Jesus that they remain pretty pure in their following of Christ through their elementary age years. Then middle school hits and something explodes in the brains of somebody, I don't know who, but it just seems to get out a little whack there and things start to go haywire sometimes. And they still are active usually in the youth groups, but may or may not really be following Jesus anymore. And then in high school, it's like a funnel from elementary on up. Then in high school, it slims down even more. And in our area, we have so many churches that are doing phenomenal jobs with our students that there are thousands of students that are in youth ministries, but there is a massive difference between being a part of a student ministry in a church and being a follower of Jesus. Now, you can be a follower of Jesus and be active in the student ministry, but you can also be active in the student ministry and not be a follower of Jesus. It just seems to get narrower and narrower, those who actually are loving and following Jesus. And that's what I'm excited about highlighting these two. These are ones that are following Jesus and what they're doing. I also want to say today that I know for a lot of you, you dropped your kids off at college this week. And uh, for some of you, uh, that was your first time, and uh, that can be incredibly difficult. Uh, and then for others, it was your second or third or fourth child. And uh, I, I will never forget the first time we took our first one to school. We were unloading from his room at our home to the car, and I just call it the empty room. Uh, I just fell apart uh, in the different carryings of stuff back to the cars, but I couldn't let anybody see, right? You got to hold your emotions. So I would sob in the room when I would hear footsteps. I would cover up real quick uh, until the next round of emptying the room. Uh, and I actually thought it'd be simpler the second time around, and it was not. I, I missed uh, my sons. I, I love them. Uh, and that was, that was hard for me. At the same time, what an exciting time uh, in life for them and the potential uh, for what Christ uh, can do in and through them. If you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we're going to hang out in the first three verses. Really, the first one most of the time uh, will finish in two, and then uh, I'll just briefly mention verse three. Uh, over the years, I've found Hebrews 12, one through three to be one of my favorite places uh, to re-anchor and re-tether myself and us as we think about key ideas uh, of who Christ has called us to be. So we're thinking about rest, and what I want to say to just really clarify, if you haven't been here, this is a great way to get started. If you have been, I want to clarify that our rest we're speaking of first and foremost comes in Christ. Not anything we do, not any rhythm that we do, nothing. Our, our rest is first and foremost in Jesus and if that part gets missed, the rest of what I say will feel like legalism, it'll feel like a burden, it'll feel like works, but it's not. It's the result of my rest in Christ, and that's where my identity lies. So now I do life from the core of who I am in Christ. We've talked about rest as rhythm. We'll speak more about those rhythms next week. I thought I would get to the other ones today. I'll slightly hit that. Uh, but next week, I'll wrap it up with uh, the finishing up thing about the rhythms. We talked about the Sabbath and that God's design is six days of work, one day of rest. And that one day of rest is just a day that looks different than the other six. And that is God's rhythm and his design. So let's think about today, uh, rest from enemies. Rest from enemies. Well, what are those barriers to our rest in Christ? What are those things that distract us or keep us uh, from following and resting in Him? In Hebrews 12, uh, just by way of reminder, in Hebrews, uh, the early Christians were starting to fall away. Uh, 
there was persecution coming, uh, and they started thinking, you know, it, it was a little better uh, doing this thing. And now they're thinking, gosh, if, if it's going to have suffering with it and persecution with it, I don't know. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, there is nothing better than Jesus. What, what you think you're going back to was good, it's really not. Jesus is better. He's better. And by the time we get to chapter 12 uh, of Hebrews, we've seen multiple reasons why Jesus is so worth it, worth being captivated by, worth enjoying, worth following, worth suffering for. And in chapter 11, he describes several people over the years who have uh, been faithful followers of, of, of God and then through Jesus. So verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1 First thing I'd like us to think about uh, to overcome our enemies is to be encouraged by believers that are already experiencing eternal rest. We can be encouraged by those who've gone before us that now are experiencing eternal rest with God. And I want to be careful when I say that because I looked after I wrote it and I thought that's not even the best way to say it. Eternity is now. It's not we die and then we enter into eternity. We are already eternal beings. When we die, it's merely separating out. And those who are in Christ will spend an eternity of rest in Christ forever in heaven. And those who are not in Christ will spend an eternal unrest in hell apart from God. But right now, we're all eternal beings. And we can be encouraged by those who are in that eternal rest. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews uses therefore quite a bit. He, he is making a case, and then he looks back. He makes a case, and he looks back. In this case, he's looking back into chapter 11 and saying, this great cloud of witnesses I've just described to you. These are men and women of the faith through the ages that have been faithful to the end and now are in this eternal rest. Uh, About three years ago, we worked through Hebrews in detail, and a friend of mine said something about chapter 11 I'd not thought about, and I loved how he said it. God focuses on our faith, not on our failures. Because when you read chapter 11 and you read these people, they had some major failures in their lives. And you just kind of look at it and say, wow, how did they get the highlights? But God's focus is not on their failure, it's on their faith. Now, we tend to focus on our own failures, God's focus is not on our failures, His focus is on our faith. And so we can be encouraged by these particular followers of Jesus and the faith that they had. And I love the cloud term that he uses. I I really like uh, just that part of God's creation. And uh, I love looking at the different formations of clouds. And Wednesday night, I don't know if you went outside or not, it was probably around 9, 9.30, and uh, the, the lightning was just flashing through the clouds. It was a beautiful cloud uh, display, uh, and then there was the flashes of light. It wasn't like, uh, you know, the, the lightning strikes or, or the, the bolts of lightning. It was just lighting it up. So you could see the clouds, and then the clouds were being lit up by the lightning. It's just God's majesty and His splendor and His beauty. I just kind of let I say, God, I love that you do that. And then when I look here, I think about the clouds. These are people that, that the light of, of God came on them and it changed them. And that's what happened when we were a part of this great cloud of witnesses. What we're, it, it's Christ coming into us. He's the light. He's moving the dark out. And it's like we're in this lightning flash of the clouds and he's just radiating himself all in and through us. That's what he does. And so we have all these people that have gone before us. We have students at Colleyville Heritage that are now part of this cloud of witnesses that are following faithfully after Christ. We have people that 
have passed away that have been in our lives that were faithful followers and now are in that eternal rest with Jesus. We have people that are younger than us that are faithfully full-on following. We can read biographies of people historically that followed Jesus. There's so many that we have this great cloud of witnesses that literally surround us that have been faithful and God has carried them all the way through to his final rest. So be encouraged by others today. But there's a couple of things we need to get rid of according to this verse. Things that rob us of rest and that bring unrest deep in our souls. He said, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let's work with the first one before we go to the second. Let's also lay aside every encumbrance. Take note of the word every. It's not... Let's lay aside a few of our encumbrances and leave the rest. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. The word encumbrance is a word that would be a weight, uh, a word of something that would slow us down, uh, something that would distract us or hold us back. It's not necessarily a sin. The things I'm talking about in this phrase are not a sin in and of themselves. These can be good things. And oftentimes what weighs us down and takes away our rest, it's good things. It's not sinful things. When a runner, the idea of this section of scripture is out of a competitive runner, an athlete, When a runner is coming into the arena to compete in these days, this was written, is the Isthmian Games, similar to the Olympic Games that we have today. And they would enter into the arena wearing a robe, a long flowing robe. Nothing wrong with the robe. That's how they entered into the arena before they would begin the race. But to try to run in that robe would be a problem. That that athlete would not be able to compete at his or her very best. It would not be possible because he'd be fighting off that robe. Nothing wrong with the robe, not good for running that race. So what are those things that are weights or heavy on us? Now we know in the athletic world, in the apparel world, that They're continually designing things that enable us to be the most fluid, the most effective, the quickest, the fastest, the strongest, nothing to inhibit us so that whatever that sport is, we can excel at that sport. Shed some things and then put on some things. The things will enable us to be the most effective, the quickest, fastest. We win. This will be different for every person, whether you're online or in the room. But I'm going to suggest three things that I think in our culture are weights today that are not necessarily sin in and of themselves, but maybe they need to be shed so that we can truly be at rest in Christ and operate out of a place of rest. And I just want to see today, would we also be willing, just each of us personally, to ask God today? Maybe it's not what I suggest. Maybe it's something different. But what are those things that weigh you down, actually bring unrest, but they're not in and of themselves sin? The first one I would say is noise. That everywhere we go, there's noise. When I get in the car, there's noise. The radio's on, Spotify's on, a podcast is on, something every time we get in the car. In our homes, 
we have speakers set up in different rooms in our homes. And when we walk in the door, if we haven't left it on, we immediately put on something on the radio or through the speakers. We listen to something. Or we go in this room and we turn the TV on. We go, a remote, we do the remote. And we, we do that. Or you've got something smart on your phone and you've preset it so that it's going to be ready for you when you get home. Uh, and so we, we go into multiple rooms and we have the, the television going. Or maybe one room or just two rooms, but we have noise. Anywhere we go, there's noise. You go to a sporting event and it's going to be constant noise from the, the speaker system constantly keeping us engaged, entertained, telling us when to clap because we don't know if something's good or not, so they have to tell us. Noise is everywhere. And I think if we're in constant noise, it's difficult to be at rest inwardly. Even good worship music noise, good podcasts that are great teachings, good things that are helpful for us just in our everyday life. I've substitute taught some, and, and students have earbuds in their ears. They have noise going in their heads all day long. So I wrote a paper on this when I was in school several years ago, back in the 90s. It was interesting because I reread the paper in preparation for this series, and nothing has changed. Only the names of the devices and what the devices are. And I said to my professor when I was working on this paper, I had to get it approved, and we worked through uh, what, it, what I was doing. And, and she said, what do you see as the barriers to rest? to time alone with God. Well, what are the barriers to that? And I said, noise. And I said, it's a problem. It's everywhere. And she said, no, that's not right. You're choosing to put noise in your life everywhere you go. You're choosing to turn that on when you get in the car you're choosing to put the earbuds in when you run and exercise. You're choosing to use your remote and get the TVs going in the rooms. You're choosing the noise. Good noise and bad noise, we choose a good majority of it. It's not bad. But does that much noise create actually a bit of unrest the second thing i might suggest would be a crowded schedule we leave no margin we don't leave margin to be able to be a help in a situation that we might not have planned for and our schedules probably if we looked at them we would say these are good this is all good stuff and i want to keep my kids busy it'll keep them out of trouble this is all good stuff in my schedule. Probably is. But is it good to keep that kind of pace, a hurried pace? Is it possible today that one of the biggest creators of anxiety is our crowded schedules? Are, are we willing to look at some different things rather than an immediate medical thing? I'm not saying sometimes that's not the case. But are we willing, willing to take a look and say, gosh, this is a pretty harried pace. Everybody seems to be okay. But why is there so much anxiety? And the third one, I would say, is unhelpful social media. I'm careful there to say there's unhelpful social media and there's helpful social media. So could it be that we are, uh, we have 
too much social media. I've mentioned this book before. I want to highlight it again. It's been helpful for me. Uh, Felicia Wu's song wrote it. It's called Restless Devices. I found the title a bit intriguing. Uh, and uh, in it, she talks about the digital ecology that we're in. She's a sociology professor. She teaches classes on the internet and on social media. She'll have her students do a number of exercises. I love her interactions because she's not like trashing social media and the use of uh, digital ecology. She recognizes we're in that world, so we have to operate in that world. Uh, but she's also acknowledging what are the faults uh, and flaws with it, and then what are exercises, things we can do to counter it. Uh, and I think I mentioned, you know, one of hers is, I don't have my phone on me, uh, but one of it is count how many times in 24 hours you pick your phone up. Now, I reframed that for myself because there's some useful times to pick up the phone, and I thought the question is not to me, not how many times I pick it up. The question is, why am I picking it up? Is there a good reason that I'm picking it up right now? One thing that she says in here, she, uh, she's quoting a guy that was the first president of Facebook. And he admitted that he and other industry leaders were not innocently trying to make the world a better place. This is what he said. The thought process that went into building these applications was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? We need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. Uh, and then we also know that that's getting people more data so that they can target us more. Uh, and then exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself, he said, would come up with. Because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors, the creators, it's me, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's Kevin Systrom on Instagram, it's all of these people, understood this consciously, and we did it anyway. And what really fires up this professor is when she realized that who they were aiming at was 13 and 14-year-olds to behaviorally change their psychology. There's unhelpful things in the digital ecology. This one's a little hard for me to do because a lot of you have on smartwatches. So you're going to think, well, why'd you just target me? I'm not. I don't have one. I haven't had one. Um, doesn't mean I'll never have one. Today, I just haven't today. But this is my observation. I had a friend on our staff say to me one time, be where your feet are. Meaning, be present. How many times have we sat across from someone with a smartwatch and we feel like they're really not present? Or I'm more subtle. Eating lunch. But somehow I lost eye contact with you. Is it possible something constantly going off on our wrist gets us in a bit of unrest? And then this weekend I was reading the paper. Uh, we, we did our Sabbath. We're not, I'm not always great at it, but I, I had a, a good one this weekend. <clears throat> and I read the paper and it was interesting the other day because I ran into a guy that I see often, and he always was reading the newspaper. And I asked him, I said, why do you read the newspaper? And he said, because when you do it digitally, they're telling you and feeding you what to read. There's actually great articles in the newspaper. And when you just read it, you can start finding those articles. And I thought, I have never thought about that. So I get this paper every weekend. I usually just throw it away because I've read the things they fed me all week. But I've never just dug in at what might be other stories. 
And so I opted out of news stories or things about anything that was really controversial in sense of the news, because I try to break from the news. I think that's a good Sabbath thing. But this is what I read. It's really interesting for today. It's an article called, Be Careful What You Pack for College Classes. More than two decades of studies have found that laptops in the college classroom make for, in most cases, a dangerous mix. Isn't that interesting? They've studied some of our most elite colleges in the country and found that when students use their laptops to take notes, that they are far less inclined to pay attention and miss pieces of their education compared to what they suggest. Maybe we go back to a spiral notebook and a pen because there's something about learning that happens when you go pen to paper. Now you're thinking, this is the most antiquated sermon I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I'm just raising questions about things that create unrest in our lives. When God has designed us to be in a place of rest. Now, a number of people sent in things to me that were helpful. Uh, I asked you to do so. What, what kind of disturbs uh, your rest? And uh, and some of those were the world's defining of success that says you work, you keep working. If you break, you're lazy. And so there can be a guilt. And then sometimes there's that guilt complex. Somebody else say, I wish I could rest. I wish I didn't have all these things to do. And then you feel guilty and feel like you ought to be doing more because you're not keeping the pace that someone else is. Uh, there was, uh, some people love to be busy. And, and I really think we sort of uh, maybe address that a little bit because I don't think that's bad. It's, it's what is the right kind of busyness that Jesus would have us to be about. And the Sabbath day, for example, is to be a different day than the other days. So it can be a day of activity that's refreshing, that's just different than another day. Some people talk about the phone, uh, talking about a lack of dependence uh, on God, uh, and it's everything's up to me, so I'm not trusting God. That, that is what's happening when we don't rest. We're not trusting God uh, to actually keep working while we're resting Youth sports, the fear of missing out, always being wired and connected. Uh, And then the idea, uh, I think it was being funny, uh, that when the Cowboys lose, like that creates unrest uh, in people. Uh, And then another one just talked about perfectionism. Uh, And uh, it's it's tough when you're a perfectionist to stop working because you want your work uh, to just be done really, really well. Those are things to consider on... The weights that are not sin, they can become sin. They're not necessarily sin. It will look different for all of us. The second thing in this particular phrase, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, uh, is to eliminate actual sin. Uh, Sin can entangle. We all have a sin nature. Uh, We're all broken at our core. Christ rescues and redeems that. Uh, And yet it's an ongoing fight and battle the rest of our days. Uh, And we can easily get trapped or entangled in sin. We drift into it. We ease into it. It's not always... Hey, I'm going to go do this thing wrong. Uh, It's oftentimes a drift. Uh, And I just want to highlight three things that I struggle with personally that maybe you do as well. And then whatever other things, we could spend months talking about what these could be. But what is it in your life that is sin uh, that could be creating unrest? Underneath all of this is unbelief. Timothy Keller, years ago, I heard him talk, and I thought, that makes perfect sense to me. It took me a little while, and then I thought, all right, I get it, that underneath every sin is unbelief. So we talk about different sins, but really underneath it is not believing what God says. It's the sin under the sin. There's multiple layers of sin in any sin as a norm. So the first one I would say to consider that we'd want to eliminate is comparison. Uh, I've struggled with that for years uh, really pray my whole life, candidly. And envy, jealousy, those things, it's ugly in my heart and mind. Years ago, I went to a, a solitude retreat. I was guided by a, a psychotherapist nun. 
uh, named Sister Eileen in Baltimore, Maryland. And she guided me for the weekend. She asked me what I wanted to work on. I said, I want to work on the comparison and envy. And uh, one thing she said to me that I've always remembered. So we compare ourselves to what we don't know about others. That's what I said. And for years, I've leaned on that. And then I started realizing, well, that's not even what I need to lean on. Because the sin in and of it, it doesn't matter if I'm comparing to what I see or don't see. It's sin. (laughs) Either one. I mean, it helps me understand what happens, but it's not an out or it's a, but it's, oh, but it's just, it's sin. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love does not envy, it's not jealous. So anytime I'm comparing envious or jealous, I have stepped out of the safety of God's love. And I've stepped into the unrest of sin. Pride is another one. With pride, we think we know better, uh, and then we control things. And when we lose control, then we become anxious. When we get anxious, then we become fearful. It's an ugly quadruplet of, of what goes on. I actually believe today uh, that this would be more the root issue when we talk about any kind of sexual sin. Because what we're saying is that we don't believe God. We don't believe God about what he says on gender. We don't believe God about what he says on marriage. We don't believe God on what he says is the right kind of and healthy sexual intimacy that is in a marriage between a man and a woman. We don't believe God about that. It's a pride issue before it's a sexual sin issue. So pride can create unrest, and when we get outside of God's design, then that unrest settles in. Bitterness would be the last one I would at least say here. And any time we, uh, we refuse to forgive, uh, we build a bitterness, a resentment, uh, and then a self-pity uh, in that regard. So those sins that entangle us, those, and bitterness certainly creates unrest. These are enemies to our rest. Uh, a few months ago, and I've highlighted this a couple of times, uh, we were at Passion with our seniors and our college students and. Uh, Jenny Allen, I believe, was the one speaking, and, and she just led us in a time of corporate confession of our sin uh, in small groups of three or four or five, sometimes people you didn't even know. I thought, man, she's got a lot of guts in the way she just did this. Uh, but this is what she asked us to do. She said, so often there is a final one or two percent of something in our hearts that are sin, that is sin, and that's the part that keeps us in unrest. A refusal to get that last ugly part out of the dark and into the light. And we did that. I mean, I listened to things and I thought, wow, I can't believe these things are being confessed here. But it is freeing to get it out of the dark. Someone the other day asked me, they're going to counseling, and they said, "Uh, hey, I want to make the most of my money. I know I only get 45 minutes. What suggestions do you have for me to make the most of it? I said, well, this is what I know. Tell them everything as fast as you can. And that last 2%, if you think about holding something back, get that out quick. Because they can't work with you if they don't know what that last 2% is. They're going to give you advice that's not going to get you to where you want to go. So if you want to maximize your money, this is free counseling tips, by the way. Maximize your money. Maximize the time. Get it out there. And whether it's a counselor or not a counselor, we need to come clean with that last 2%. And it's amazing the freedom and the rest that God will bring, even if it's a hard path from there. The way into rest with Christ is in repentance. And once we know Christ, then the way to ongoing rest is repentance. Confession and repentance. That's a beautiful rhythm that God has given us. So we can remain free and at rest. That when we sin, we confess to Him and we repent. And at times it's helpful to confess to others. I want to shift here from things we get rid of to what we embrace and where we fix our eyes. 
He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is a race that God has sovereignly and providentially given to each one of us. You have a different race than I do. You have a different race than I do. You have a different race than they do. God has given us a sovereign, providential race. It's Ephesians 2.10. He's prepared us a good works for us. We're to walk in those good works. That's the race we're to run. So each of us are, in one effect, running a different race, and yet we're all centered on the same goal. And Jesus Christ is that goal. Why is it that a runner would get out of a race. They're competing, they're playing, whatever it is, what causes them to get out of the race? Injury? Loss of motivation? Different interests? You don't really believe in it anymore. I think that's why this is such a good parallel to our faith. Because it's the same reason people get out of the race God has called us to as Christians. We get hurt. And the popular term today is church hurt. We get hurt by somebody in the church. We get hurt by somebody in the staff in the church. And so we're out. I don't want to diminish the hurt that happens. I do like what I heard somebody say a few weeks ago. When we're hurt by somebody in the church... It actually shows us why we need the gospel. Because while we're saints and children of God, we're still broken. We're still in desperate need of Jesus and his work on the cross. We lose motivation. We drift. We find other interests that are more interesting to us. We get discouraged. Satan is one of our enemies that takes us out of the race. He puts a delusion over us, the scripture says. I believe today he's just deluded our culture. There's so much. It just makes no sense. Satan does that. He deludes our thinking. And the world does everything it can to shape us into something other than Christ himself. My son has been reading a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. He called me the other day, and we talked about it, and then we talked about it a little more later in the week, and he summed it up for me, which I was grateful, and said, I don't have to read it. But Viktor Frankl was in a concentration camp at Auschwitz and Dachau for four years. And he made some observations about people and their sufferings and their desire to get out of the concentration, which we all would. He said they were looking forward to getting out of the suffering, he said... But I don't think anyone was considering that once you get out of this suffering, there might be another kind of suffering right around the corner. And in some ways, life is like that. It's suffering, and then there's another kind of suffering. It might be worse, not as bad, but we actually don't know. And Frankel came to the conclusion that if we're going to have meaning in life, it's not about escaping or avoiding suffering. Rather, it's the approach that we'll choose to take towards that suffering. And what this writer is telling us to do is to know that we have a long-haul race in front of us. There will be a lot of suffering for our faith. There will be physical suffering. There will be all kinds of suffering. We may be in a constant state of dealing with some kind of suffering. So get ready and run the race well. Embrace the long-haul of the suffering. Now, the disadvantage we have, if someone's going to run a marathon 26.2 miles, they know there's a finish line. They know they're training for 26.2 miles. They know that. And sometimes you can just see it. If, you, if I got five miles to go, I can do it. Or it's a 10K or a 5K or a 1K fun run, depending on what kind of shape you're in, but you can at least see it. And I don't know today if your finish line is today or tomorrow or next week or months from now or years from now, but I know the prize. So we keep our eyes on the prize and we get in for the long haul, no matter what suffering comes our way. That's what it means to endure 
and run the race with endurance. And we do it and endure as we keep finding our rest in Jesus. In verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a question of what we're staring at. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So there's that negative idea of I get rid of this weight, I get eliminate the sin. Positively, I'm running this race with endurance by keeping my eyes on Jesus. That's how I maintain rest. My eyes are on Jesus. I'm, I'm captivated by Jesus. I, I can't help but think about Jesus. I can't help but think about the cross and what he did on my behalf there. I can't help about, but think about the resurrection and the power with which he was raised and that he's raised me. I can't help but think about how God brought him into heaven and he's going to return one day and get us. I think about the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus uh, and I keep my eyes on him. We can either stare at the obstacles in front of us or we can stare at the God who is above the obstacles. We can stare at the trials that are in front of us or we're currently in or we can stare at God who will carry us through the trials and he'll make us stronger and he'll lead us with joy through the trials. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is about Jesus. And when we find our rest in Jesus, then our souls will stay in a constant state of rest. He is the author. He's the leader of our faith. He's the perfecter, which means he's the finisher of our faith. He's the one that saw joy, and as he saw joy, uh, he was able to endure because he saw what the end looked like and what it would look like for us in his work on the cross. He's the one that endured with intense suffering, and he despised the shame. That means he looked down on it as he hung naked on that cross. He didn't let that shame absorb him. He looked down on it. He didn't give it any value because he knew what he was doing and who he was in his father. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He rested after he completed his work on the cross. And by grace, he's inviting you and me into that rest. Do you believe it? And then it's ongoing. The other day, I ran into a guy that I haven't seen before at the gym. And I asked him his story. And we started talking, and he said, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had quadruple bypass surgery. I said, wow. And here we are at the gym. I said, what happened? Because I had gone down to Austin, and I was in a house. It was a two-story house. My sister was on the bottom floor. I was on the top floor. And he said, I was um, sleeping through the night. About 7 a.m. I awakened and my airway was almost totally closed. I, I couldn't breathe. And he said, I reached over and I grabbed my phone and I texted my sister, help. This is a good use of a phone, by the way. <laughs> I texted my sister, help. She came running up the stairs Called 911. Within four minutes, the paramedics were there. I was at the hospital. They found one artery 100% closed, a widowmaker. Two arteries 95% closed, and then another one. He didn't tell me the percentage. And he was told, any later by anybody in this, and you don't make it. The only way we actually ever enter into... God's rest is coming to a place of humility saying help I'm dead unless you come free me up that's what Jesus did he didn't come to make bad people nice people he came to take dead people and make them alive and when we believe Jesus, he opens up those arteries with forgiveness and freedom and peace and joy. And that's what pumps through is the life of Christ. It's a perfect rhythm, Christ in us.
dependence on him for immediate rescue and salvation and ongoing trust in Jesus. We'll be free from our enemies. We'll move out of a place of rest. Labor in the Spirit of God as we relax and ease into the glory of God. Father, thank you for uh, this time in your word today. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that stare at you, that are riveted by you, that are captivated by you, that love you deeply. Father, will you stir, if our hearts aren't there, will you stir them that way? Lord, I pray anyone that has never entered into your rest, that today would be a day they believe it. God, if not today, would you keep stirring them until they do? And then, Father, I pray for those who have entered your rest and who know you and are uh, and experiencing unrest. I pray, God, today will you show us each personally and as families and as friends, what, what are those things we need to shed that are good things, but they're robbing us of our rest in you? And then the same with sin. Whatever we're entangled in, will you bring us to a place of humility and confession And Father, by your grace and power, will you break our hearts to where we say, help. And in your mercy, draw us to yourself. We're grateful today that in your design, we can be at rest, refreshed. So will you do that in our church, and that we'd be known as a people that rest in Christ and labor in the Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. If we could, let's be quiet and we just ask God today, what are you saying to me today, God? From your word, what, what are you saying? And then how do you want me to respond to it? Let's, let's just have this stillness before him.